0: Big, wide, fantastic, unbelievable, Walt Disney-type world. Somebody wrote me a note, says, Shepard, you know, have you noticed that uh, all the new shows are comedies on television? Coming up, he says the greatest new one is a comedy about uh, World War II German prison camps. So he said, will have you laugh a minute. Yes, indeed. As Belson revisited, with the Soupy Sayles playing the leading role. Uh, George, you're as a matter of fact, he says, you know, it looks like the whole world is getting to be either Walt Disney on one end, soupy Sales on the other, with a little soups on of perhaps uh, uh, Lenny Bruce in the middle, all serious thinkers on the larger issues of the day. Bring it up there. I think that's enough of that mediocrity. Thank you. Speaking of mediocrity, have you noticed that uh, I'm looking good these days? Have you fellas noticed that? Have you noticed how my eyes sparkle behind my impenetrable shades? <laughs> you notice that, huh? Well, uh, you know why this is. I'm thinking clean thoughts. I'm thinking beautiful, clean thoughts, and uh, I have found that that does more for you. It does really more for you than anything else. I know. I've tried push-ups. I've tried isometrics. I've tried uh, reading Terry Southern. I've tried almost anything. I've gone to important movies. I've tried everything to pull myself out of the mire of mediocrity. I've uh, done a lot of things, and uh, I've discovered that, (laughs) strangely enough, clean thoughts will do it. I've been revisiting the Bobsey Twins, great series of books. Uh, And, in fact, uh, the other day I was sitting a chock full of nuts reading the Bobsey Twins on the farm. It's a wonderful story. And there's a scene where, you know, they go out in the woods and they ride on this little wagon. A little goat pulls them in the cart and uh, they come home to Granny's house and she fixes them hot chocolate. One of the most exciting, dramatic things I've seen in long... I wonder why they don't do those... I think they make a heck of a movie. Uh, the Bobsey Twins. Uh, Tony Perkins and uh, Tuesday Weld could play it. Of course, uh, you know, you've got to add little jazz you know, for modern day days. It'll jazz it up a little bit, though. But I think Tony's been playing one of the Bobsey twins for years. Certainly Tuesday has. Or is it Wednesday? I forget. Of course, you know, time passes so quickly you don't know what day it is anymore. So. All right, George, you know, speaking of time passing quickly, I'm uh, fist fighting my way through Midtown Manhattan this morning. And uh, I caught a cab, you know, and it's about. Two and a half hours later, we're still a block and a half from where I caught it. And the fantastic traffic and fist fights breaking out on all sides, and this squat figure, the cab driver ahead of me, said one of the great lines I've heard in a long time. <laughs> you can see these giant buildings rising up on all sides of us, and the efficient looking. Have you ever. Are you, are you the type that sits in the back seat of a cab when you're finally truncated and you're not going to go anywhere? You know it, you know, for at least another hour. And you just sit there in the back and you watch chicks. Walking past you, I do that. That's I'm a great chick watcher from the back seat of cab, <laughs> And uh, somehow it gives you a sense of great importance because you're being driven through the city. You know, you feel like my chauffeur up here. I'll pause here for a moment. Uh, do you mind if I drink a little champagne out of your slipper, honey? And uh, she's on her way to <laughs> her job in the mail room with BBD and all. You know, it's just, well, uh, I'm sitting back there watching the chicks and one thing and then the horns are honking and the cab driver's getting the back of his neck is red, you know, and he's looking out. And all of a sudden, of course, uh, it, it, the whole scene has to be recreated. It was far more than just the just the uh, world of the taxis. It was more than the world of the of the 20th century excitement that we're part of. You know, this giant, fantastic, unimaginable traffic jam that is called the modern, hard-hitting, exciting life of New York City. Uh, it was more than that. Have you noticed that New York has become almost in, unbelievably excruciatingly? Dirty! Oh boy, what a dirty, rotten city! <laughs> they don't talk much about that, you know. They all, they all, yeah, they all talk about the excitement in New York, and everybody talks about the, the, the pace of New York, which is incidentally a very slow crawl. Uh, for those of you outside of New York who think that New Yorkers live in in uh, fantastic speed, that uh, forget it. It took me at least an hour and a half to go six blocks. If that's a crawl, listen, I can I can crawl on one leg better than that in Waterville, Maine with the wind against me and through snow drifts. Uh, so there's no, no such thing as a fast pace in New York, believe me. Uh, and uh, they never say one thing, though. I think that's the most important part of New York, and that is the, is the, uh, is the dirt of New York. I mean, you can stand on a street corner in New York for seven and a half minutes, and you can feel that stuff, just fall in great waves, undulating waves. So nobody in New York, there isn't a single soul in the city who is not fully familiar with fallout of one kind or another, and some of the stuff, some of the fantastic exotic stuff comes out of the sky around here, and it just comes down in a long, steady, continuous rain, it just comes to sunny. you can stand a half an hour on a, on a sidewalk in New York and the drifts are up to your knees, and uh, one kind or another, and, and uh, they never talk about that side of New York, it's just, a, just never, have you wondered why most of the citizens of New York wear shades? It's either that or no eyes. Uh, you do. You just have to wear shades, and, and and it just bounces off you. So I'm sitting in this cab, and you can see the crud bouncing off the hood on all sides, you know. And the and the driver, he's been out, you know. He started out in the morning with a spanking, bright, shiny cab, you know. They washed it over the night, and by now all he's got is a little slit that he's gouged out of the windshield, you know, with the cruds or he can see he's peering out, and the back windows are slowly crudding over. And the you know the thing about perhaps you don't notice about New York cabs either or new york streets in general is that there's a continual liquid fallout on them from all kinds of things airedales old guys sitting in doorways all kinds of stuff (laughs) it's a continual uproar boy i'll tell you stuff and and we're sitting in this cab and the the milieu has to be you have to include the noise i mean up on top of his up on top of his dashboard on top of his dashboard uh, he had, he, of course, he had the little... They all carry it with him now. On top of his dashboard is his transistor radio. And New York is going all around us. There's continuous uproar. And the, we're looking out, you know. You could, I can see the chicks going past me. And the, the crud and the fallout is coming down. It's constant uproar, you know. And the gears are shifting. And he's like, get up, get off. He's yelling out there at the cop. And, and the cop is yelling back at him. his little transistor radio is playing on and on and on and on. John, I'm sitting there. Back, I'm kind of lounging and I'm reading the post. I'm reading the back page of the post. It says, Casey up and around, Mets dropped seventh in a row. And, uh, you know, life is going on in this big rich city of ours, the fallout. New York Yankees claim they've been using frozen baseballs against them. That's why they have been hitting, you know. You, may, you begin to believe that it's frozen kneecaps that are keeping the Yankees back, and I'm sitting there resting. And the transistor radio is going on and on and on. American culture is pouring in from all sides, everywhere you look, you know. And and the uproar and finally he reaches over, you know. The, the the uproar outside is getting a little too loud, so he reaches up and he turns up his transistor radio. Lady Falcon and Emily. And speaking of nuclear yes, this week's Speedy Clip Quip. Definition of a bachelor, a man who isn't married. <laughs> oh. He groaned and all. Washington. <laughs> shows Radio was going on, on and out and out. <laughs> <up with> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's the good guys. <laughs> the four good guys <laughs> are laying it out. <laughs> or the ten or the <laughs> five million good guys. They're <laughs> <laughs> squirting it out along with all the rest <laughs> of the fronty <friendly laughs> fallout Don't break the devil and Frank Costello's <laughs> mother. Oh, wow! what an exciting moment. Well, there was a brief instant there while it hung. And uh, then all of a sudden, he said it. He hadn't said anything for seven blocks. That's like two hours. And he said, you know, and I looked at him, I said, what? He says, you know, my mother told me to go to school. My mother told me to go to school, and he turned it up again. He turned it up right. again. <laughs> the okay. Okay. Oh, oh, why, Tiny what, what an exciting life. Supply, we sat there, both of us, mired in our own 20th century ignorance. Hit. I had gone to school. He hadn't. And both of us were caught in the same rotten, crummy, wild, swinging, noisy fallout, dirty, stinky trap on 47th Street heading against the the fantastic tide of 20th century America. My mother told me to go to school. Well, my mother told me to go to school. I did. He didn't. And there we sat separated by a foot and a half of dirty, rotten cab going the same way. No way. Definition of a bachelor, (laughs) a man... Oh, on and on and on it went. (laughs) Now you know I, I I thought about that after we after we headed on down, I finally arrived here at this rat's nest, and um, the uproar continued here the forty five hundred elevators going up and down, and eighteen thousand little short guys with gray fedoras with with a brown attache cases getting off and on, and their cigars going fiendishly in the you know and I, I was thinking about the that line and that that line, you know, all this jazz that they're putting on the air about dropouts, all this crud, you know, they come out with a, with forty five minutes of rock and roll and they think this is going to convince our, uh, uh, you know, Murray the K, one of our deeper thinkers, this is going to convince the out the that, that they ought to go back to school. Well, Murray shows it, you know, and uh, and I and I'm wondering, and I'm, I'm not saying anything about about whether or not. See, I think people confuse entertainment with communication and and the idea that you've entertained 4000 kids who are dropping out with rock and roll the idea that you've communicated the idea that they shouldn't drop out is a totally erroneous one in fact uh, i have seen hours of entertainment put on in uh, in uh, in the name of uh, good works i have been uh, myself i've been on at least a half dozen uh, telethons. I, I have made it a rule for, for the last couple of years to never even get near those monstrosities, and they're done with the, you know, with the idea that they're doing something for good works. Well, you know, this letter this kid wrote to me that I that I mentioned here earlier uh, on the opening of the show is very true, it's literally true, uh, that today entertainment has to, totally superseded any kind of serious consideration of any problem that we're faced with. And so uh, we, we, take, we take the case, let's say the case of, uh, of one of the passé subjects of our world, the atom bomb. People really think they've done something about the atom bomb when they go to see a Stanley Kubrick movie. They really do. <laughs> they honestly do. They have that great sense of being right thinkers. You know, they walk down the street, they've paid their $4 to see this turkey, and they feel that they've really done a majestic thing about the atom bomb. Large numbers of people, seriously, will read a book by James Baldwin and think they've done something about civil rights. Uh, now, now this, 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 is a, this is a difficult problem because our world is full of right-thinking people who prefer to think about subjects or talk about subjects or breastbeat about subjects or wail about subjects. And then they put in their little wailing period and then they go off to business as usual. Now this uh this is this is a this is a this is not necessarily new but it's getting to be a major difficulty in our time always there were the non-doers they always were with us but today the do, the non-doer has begun to believe he is a doer that's a new trick that's a new twist to it in short the guy who buys uh, a Lenny Bruce record. Really thinks he's done something for freedom of speech. You know, uh, uh, this is this is a this is a fascinating problem. 1,800 kids sitting in a teach-in. Now, now I, and, and uh, again with the with the parallel with the parallel that has developed to the parallel of entertainment as an action, a positive action. The idea of sitting in an audience at an entertainment. This is felt today to be a positive forward movement. You know, one of the things that, that I have felt very strongly about so many of the civil rights units that I have been often on involved with is that they all seem to eventually wind up as entertainment. They're sort of like a, a traveling USO troupe. And so uh, they're, they're constantly having these various things where Duke Ellington and where McKeeba, Marion McKeeba, where uh, any one of five, Bob Dylan sings, you know, the whole scene, everyone sits and applauds and roars and pays their $2 and leaves. And, and this is being really a brave civil rights fighter. Uh, this, is, this is a problem which, and on the other hand, have you noticed that, that, that civil rights has been often largely taken over by entertainment figures? who merely do what they've always done they tap dance they sing they get up on the platform and and uh, hardly anybody ever listens to people sociologists for example people who have made a genuine study of this issue nobody's bothering with that because it's not entertaining it ain't fun it is not fun to listen to somebody who has studied the economic the socio the educational problems involved in such things as as uh, as civil rights this is a drag, and so, so nobody bothers with it. There are countless discussion shows going on the air, uh, all ranging all the way from uh, the David Suskind big-time TV discussion show to the serious afternoon programs on Sunday time. Who are they constantly talking to in these civil rights programs? people like uh, Harry Belafonte. This is a deep thinker. Uh, people like uh, Dick Gregory. You know, I like Dick Gregory, but he is not necessarily Bertrand Russell, you know. Uh, people like, and I'm putting these people down. Uh, they, will, they will get Steve Allen. Uh, I, I like Steve Allen, but Steve Allen often, <laughs> Steve Allen is, is, he often reminds me of my emotional Aunt Teresa, who, 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 who was always emotional about the right things, but totally illogical. Ninety-seven percent of the time, and would reduce reduce herself often to just a state of going ah, 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 When you finally get her down, to, well, now come on, let's let's talk about the real situation. Speaking of the emotional, this is W O R A M and F M uh, in New York. And this 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 uh, you know, I, I don't often talk about these things on the air, but because I am in the entertainment world, and I recognize though that most people get very irritated. When they begin to hear serious discussions of one thing or another about subjects which uh, can be very, very troublesome, unless they're larded with laughs, unless they're watching a star do it, uh, unless, uh, you know, who wants to to hear about the problems of Birmingham if you're going to talk to two sociologists and a social worker and somebody who really knows something about it when you could get somebody, say, really jazzy like a Norman Mailer. Uh, so, so, ultimately, we wind, up, we wind up confusing entertainment with action, which can be a very serious problem. And so you'll find, you'll find that in most colleges today, many colleges today, they would much rather hear Joan Baez discuss Vietnam than, let's say, uh, the ambassador to Vietnam, who has come back after two years of studying the subject and working with them. I'd much rather hear what Bob Dylan has to say on the subject. They would much rather hear a professor at their university who is a beloved figure anyway, who is teaching romance literature of the 12th century. They would much rather hear him talk about Vietnam uh, than, let's say, somebody who has to deal with it every day across the table and who knows perhaps a little more about it than he does. Why? It's all part of that entertainment syndrome. Uh, They would much rather hear seven freshmen uh, from, uh, from dental polytech uh, who have learned to sing, I've been working on a railroad through their noses, they would much rather prefer to hear pseudo-folknic folk singers sing about poverty than somebody who has spent the last year and a half in West Virginia and studied the subject and can say something about it and tell them about it. They'd rather hear Bob Dylan sing, Oh, you don't know what troubles I've seen, i walking on the long road of life. Oh, come on. You really think you're, you're fighting out about, about the poverty, listening to, to big, friendly Jack Elliott, who spends all of his time in the Fiend, John? You really do? <laughs> you really think you know something about the Irish by listening to the Clancy brothers? Get it off. Come on. And, and, and seriously, though, this is a, a real problem, even though everybody's probably laughing now when I'm saying this is a genuine problem today that we have a country right now that has the greatest amount of communication facilities that's ever been developed in any major power in the world. And here, here we sit with, with all these things, we sit with all these radios, and what do we have hour after hour on every radio station in the country, with very, very few exceptions, hour after hour, well, you get it set up then, hour after hour after hour. Uh, what, what do we have? What do we have when when it comes to serious discussion? You know, I'll tell you what it is. I think I think that we basically, I think that that the Americans basically are probably the quickest bored people in the world. I think at the very background of it is is we have probably the lowest boredom uh, threshold of any people in any country anywhere. That means that 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 bore, boredom sets in quicker with us than it does with most other peoples. Uh, perhaps because America is a country of extroverts. America is a country of bowlers. America is a country of playgoers. Uh, America is a country of Mary Martin fans. Uh, it's a country, by the way, it's also a country of demonstrating fans, because that is not boring either, you know. Uh, so don't th- don't just think I'm putting down Mary Martin fans. Uh, that, that everything has to be put in the form of a play, or we're not interested in it. Every drama, ha- every every problem has to be put in the form of a bad novel, like Fail Safe. Uh, everything has to be put in the form of two-bit. Uh, genuinely, I wish I could use some of the words that I could really use about this kind of stuff. Ill-informed, turned out to sell, melodramatic. Pulp literature that masquerades as the, you know, dealing with the problem. Uh, this this kind of pulp, you know, it's just like taking the good guys and the bad guys. It's like taking the robbers and the cops and putting them into uh, communist, capitalist. I've read a half a dozen of these novels, and I wonder how many people actually take them seriously. Things like The Ugly American. This is pure childish balderdash. I've read it, and I know what I'm talking about, and I've been to those parts of the country, the parts of the world that, they, that this deals with. It's as childish as the, the, the Western, uh, the Western Pulp Fiction. is. Uh, do you really believe Western Pulp Fiction is about Dodge City? You really do. You really think this is the real way it was? Do you really think Shane really is about the West? <laughs> I mean, seriously. Do you think High Noon is the way it was in Texarkana? You really do. Well, if you do then, then you're really ripe for the kind of thing which passes today for grappling with a situation that is a worldwide or certainly maybe in most cases a countrywide problem. Uh, We are so attuned to to entertainment that we often confuse entertainment with thinking. We often confuse entertainment with reality. And so if we see a play, uh, I saw a play recently on, on Broadway about the civil rights issue. It was one of the silliest, saddest, worst written pieces of pulp claptrap I have seen in my life. It made Uncle Tom's Cabin look like a genuine sociological treatise. It really did. And because it was written by uh, a beloved writer of our time on the, on the subject, it was a, hardly anyone dared to say it. Very few of the critics dared to open their mouth and say, this is really bad playwriting. It's not only bad playwriting, but the ideas are ridiculous in it. Uh, and I am not, again, I guess one of the fears is that once you begin to say certain entertainments which have pseudo-high-mindedness, pseudo-serious entertainments, once you say something against them, it is construed by the public at large that you are against the good uh, the good uh, themes that they're for, or ostensibly for. That's why so many critics, you know, are very much afraid to blast uh, the, 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 those, the fantastically bad biblical epics, which continue to come out of broad, uh, Hollywood continually. They come out of Hollywood almost every couple of months. There's always a giant thing starring Charlton Heston with his face painted orange, you know, and he's wearing a bearskin rug. And uh, behind him, you have music by Dmitry Tiomkin, pseudo-religious music. And he's coming down out of a cardboard mountain, you know, and it's, it's so, such, such bad stuff that it makes you, makes you embarrassed to even look at it. And yet you'll find very few critics will really say that because they're afraid that if they say this is a bad movie, they will sound like they're atheistic. They will sound like they're anti-Bible or anti-Christian or whatever it might be now this this holds true in many other forms of of uh, of entertainments today we we'll go seriously I've often thought have you noticed have you have you noticed in, in book review sections for example uh, they will categorize literature they will say uh, serious literature that's all up in the front of the New York Times book review section then they will have uh, Western and they'll have a whole page of westerns then they'll have a whole page of detective fictions they call it crime at large whatever that might be called and if you notice they categorize fiction like that and and that in a sense gives them a chance to to blast what they want to blast for the fact that this is just a detective story so they throw it into that bin uh this is just a western story they throw it into that bin this is serious because it's thick and Saul bella wrote it so it's serious they throw it into that bin, and uh, and and I've wondered why they don't really come out with some honest categorizations of these things. Why don't they have a categorization homosexual literature, just as cleanly and de- definitively defined as say Western literature? Because these this form of literature has its own has its own uh, shadowy it has its own stock figures, and it's as serious by the way as most Western writing is. Have, have, has it ever occurred to you that many guys who write what we call Western PAP are serious about it? I've known a few of them. Uh, I've known guys who've written... who've written det- You know that Raymond Chandler was very unhappy that he was never accepted as a serious writer. He thought his books were very serious. They kept putting it in the back there where it says detective literature. He was dealing with crime, you see, as his raison d'etre and his good and evil. Uh, today, in this age of, of uh, sex writing... The only serious book is a book that deals with sex. That's that's literally what what we what we uh, what we've come to believe in, uh, and that's it, it. Even it even crops out in in uh, little uh, side uh, comments by people like Richard Watts the other day. And his uh, I happen to like a lot of things Watts says, when the other day he was saying uh, he was uh, looking at a play in in England, and and uh, in passing he remarked, he says, "Of course," he says, "this is going to be a kind of a controversial play. It deals with." ordinary sex, as opposed to the traditional themes of adultery, <laughs> and so on. Which means, in a sense, that, that that the theme of all serious writing in our day is sex. And so, this that's a fascinating development. Now, on the other hand, whenever anybody deals with so-called serious situations, genuine situations, like, uh, like uh, let's say, the war in Vietnam. Uh, let's say the war, the, the the big conflict of our time between capitalism and communism, it has to be dealt with in the form of these fantastically, unbelievably bad novels by people like the late Eugene Burdick, uh, people who who uh, who turn these things out in about seven and a half minutes flat, written from headlines and taken from very bad reports by second-rate reporters everywhere. This this is called this this is this is the way a serious subject is dealt with. Uh, I, I submit to you that in general, most books written on sex are not serious at all. They're fantasies. I, I, I submit that to you for what it's worth. We all live in a world. We've all had our experience with sex, one kind or another. Does it have any relationship at all with uh, with the stuff that you generally read about it in most novels? Of course not. Uh, it's Again, that's part of that fantasy world. And so I submit to you for whatever it's good. And by the way, that's a... That's a, a pompous word to use, submit. I submit to you uh, that, this, that this is the true fantasy world. In, in other words, fantasy fiction is really most of what we call serious literature. Uh, <laughs> to me, that is true fantasy fiction. Uh, something like uh, Norman Mailer's American Dream is fantasy fiction. Whereas, on the other hand, I think most of what is written in the, in the world of fantasy fiction, what we call ordinarily fantasy fiction, is not fantasy fiction at all. These are the guys that are really seriously thinking about the problems that face the world. Automation, the space problem, uh, the future of mankind. <laughs> These are little problems, so they go way in the back by the crossword puzzle and the ads for trusses. Uh, the reviews, if they're reviewed at all. And up in the front, some some piece of total claptrap like the American Dream is treated seriously. This is to me, this is genuine fantasy fiction. Uh, most of what is written on the civil rights is fantasy fiction. Uh, I, I, I uh, again, this is a, this is, I suppose, a uh, there's a very personal comment here, and I'm not I'm not attempting to foist my attitudes of these things off on anyone else. Except here, I am. I'm, I'm airing them. That's all. But I will say that I feel very, very strongly about the, in, the, the, the slow encroachment of entertainment into the world of what could have been uh, a serious dialogue about... The, you know, I think one of the reasons why many people don't like Johnson, he's not very entertaining. Johnson is just not a pizzazzy a TV personality. He just isn't. And, in fact, I was reading one of the so-called top critics of the administration recently, and he seemed to hold that against Johnson more than anything else, was the fact that Johnson wasn't exciting. And he held that down. Well, Hitler was very exciting, for those of you who are interested in in real going personalities. He really was. Be careful when we begin to confuse exciting personalities with deep thinking. (laughs) This is quite often the case today. And, you know, are you aware that most serious, and I use that in quotes, discussion programs on television today very carefully screen anybody who is, a go- who is going to be on the discussion, and then they're supposedly having a serious discussion, to make sure he's what they call, in their jargon, by the way, be careful, because this is a loaded word. Well, uh, Manny, uh, is he articulate? What they mean is, is he jazzy? Does he come on strong? Uh, they don't necessarily mean articulate at all. They mean, is he photographic? Uh, is he interesting? Uh, does he have a clever turn of phrase? Uh, does he realize we're in showbiz? Uh, you know, keep the show moving. Let's c- come up with the jazzy little remarks. Let's talk about, the, you know, the big in things. I'll never forget the time uh, I, I, uh, I was really, I was really, uh, really thrown by this. The first time I began to see it in action. Uh, I saw I was in the in the control room when uh, a famous late senator uh, was being interviewed. Uh, very, very a show which is no longer on the air, a network show, and it was a, a show where every week they took a controversial character and he got on the air, and he was interviewed uh, by this top newsman. And so halfway, or even halfway, not even halfway, it was about nine tenths of the way through the show. Uh, this guy all of a sudden accused, uh, Just he took one look up at the clock and he realized they only had a minute and a half or 30 seconds left on the air. And he he, he accused the interviewer of being a well-known communist uh, sympathizer. He said, everyone knows that you're a communist sympathizer. Everyone knows that you're a comm simp. And I believe that the kind of people you represent, whether consciously or not, well, he laid it out. I mean, that's pretty interesting to accuse the, the, uh, the interviewer of being a communist, in a sense. Well, there was just a brief second, and he went off the air. He timed it, see. And he rushed out of the control room and says, how did you like that communist bit at the end? That'll give him something. He said, boy, that, uh, that'll, that'll, uh, that's exciting, isn't it? And the guy stood there with his mouth hanging open. In other words, it was done as a showbiz gambit, because it was exciting. It was exciting and he recognized it was exciting and tomorrow morning they would be quoting him in the news and the next day after that he'd be interviewed about it and the, the excitement would continue. Now, now when that kind of let's be entertaining uh, attitude begins to creep into the actual makers and the formers, the shapers of history, then look out. But I do feel, though, that today uh, in this uh, this world of television and radio and best-selling novels, uh, this world of instant people, this world of instant success, uh, this world... You know, that it, are you aware that today in most art galleries and in many big art circles that an artist, forget it, is not going to make it unless he is an interesting personality himself? If he's good copy, if Vogue magazine thinks his hair is cute, If Vogue magazine likes the kind of pad he lives in, then he stands to reason, he stands to make it, he stands a good chance of going all the way. That's the show business. Now, that's harmless. To me, I think it's silly, it's sad, but it is harmless. I don't care whether whether Vogue loves Andy Warhol far more than it loves his work, which is largely banal. Uh, I I don't care. That's all right, because he'll be forgotten in a couple of months. This is the way of that kind of thing. But when we begin to bring that sort of attitude into other areas, then we're really in trouble. Then we really have got to be very careful. We've got to be very careful. Incidentally, that's another thing, too. This precludes, eventually, actually learning about any of the subjects at hand. Because I have found that most people who are wildly entertaining, who make good copy, rarely are people who spend much time uh, attempting to get at the facts. Why? Because there's some, it's a different kind of personality, that's all. It's just a different kind of man. It's just a different kind of... And I don't want to make a generality like that. I'm not saying that people who know what they're talking about are always non-entertaining. I don't want it to be construed as that. However, it is, a, it is a fact that in real life, quite often, the best people who do the, what they do best are often drab and colorless. The best lawyers I've ever known are guys who just believe me. Uh, they're not like the movie version of Clarence Darrow. They're superb lawyers, however. They really know what they're doing, and they really get it done. Uh, this is true in almost all serious fields. Very few good doctors... Look at all, act at all, or think like Ben Casey. Very, very few. And, and I want to give you one word of advice. If you run into a doctor who does, be careful. Be very careful. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you run into a lawyer who sits back and snaps his suspenders and who, who spits into the spittoon and opens up his, his celluloid collar and says, Well, let's see, son, as old Phineas Pinkham used to say, be careful. You could very well be dealing with Phineas T. Flywheel. Uh, you could very well be dealing with the character that W.C. Fields always played as a lawyer. Uh, now, on the other hand, this is true of politicians. You notice you notice that today everybody's very excited about a politician here in New York City because he's cute. Now, I happen to know the man, and I, I admire him, but I'm not necessarily going to go along with the gen, the general attitude... That because he's photogenic and he's got a great personality and knows, knows all the right things, knows all the attacks to go to, uh, knows all the right dances to dance, that he is necessarily one who can deal really with some of the serious problems that face New York City. Uh, I wonder whether anybody can, but I'm not so sure that a man is necessarily qualified because he's entertaining, because he makes good copies, he's exciting, he's photogenic. Uh, These are all things which have come to become very, very important in our time, far more important today in our time than at any given time in history. Another thing, too, is is, uh, as part of our showbiz syndrome, this is part of it. You notice that no showbiz, no showbiz attempt to talk about real life ever deals with anybody over 30 years old, ever. No chick who's in love with a guy is ever over whatever that m- nominal Bridget Bardot mythical age is. Never. Uh, if she is, that's called a character bit and it's played by Patricia Neal. Uh, however, however uh, real life seems to consist of young people doing things today because this is part of the showbiz syndrome. And so, uh, real love is only able to be consummated, and sex and all this always has to be by somebody under 30. This is a fact. Uh, All good thinkers are under 30, unless it's a father figure, and he just sits in the background and rocks. That's Spencer Tracy. He's always the old judge. That's something else again. Uh, But however, this is one of the reasons why we suspect today any... Uh, any uh, man who shows up on the TV screen and he doesn 't seem to be young enough he doesn 't seem to be young enough to be to be smart you <laughs> know he doesn 't seem to be young enough to have wisdom and and I think this is one of the reasons why Mr. Johnson is in trouble because Johnson does appear to be a mature man he appears to be a man who uh, has been around has thought a lot of things and has Seen a lot of things and experienced a lot of things. And this can often, this can often be a drug on the mind. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not here giving a speech pro-Johnson. I am merely saying, though, that some of these things are one of the... I, I believe, frankly, are some of the reasons why Johnson is not necessarily... And, oh, incidentally, that's another thing. The weak man today is often called the... the, the, the uh, well, he's called the truthful man that a man today who is is weak and who is frightened and who is unsure of himself is the man that many weak, unfrightened, unsure people will trust. And, And this is one of the reasons why almost all of our comics in the past three or four years have been little, weak, scared guys. It's the Woody Allen syndrome. They somehow are truthful. If a guy walks out and he's six feet two... And uh, he's bronzed and he has a square jaw and he says, man, you don't know what trouble is. Nobody believes him. Why? Well, we just kind of, we go that way. And one of the, I think one of the things that that we hold secretly, subconsciously against Johnson is he ain't holding Caulfield. He has ideas and he believes in them and that's the end of it, you know. And and uh, he'll, he'll stand up for them and obviously in spite of all kinds of, of adverse criticism, he will do it. And that's bad scene in a world where it, where today most people wear rimless glasses and uh, talk about how they're victims of society. Uh, he is not a victim, and and so I suspect that the next big presidential candidate will be a victim, or he will proclaim himself a victim. He will play victim, and uh, he will he will be little. He will be scrawny. He will be cute, lovable. Uh, he will be the kind that everybody wants to help and, and move on. Everyone and we want to say, well, you know, he couldn't be telling us uh, evil things because after all, he's one of us. And this is this is part of the showbiz syndrome, and that that is all around us. You know, this is one of the reasons why large numbers of people in Germany dug Hitler, because Hitler was a little scrawny guy, and he seemed to be just a little man that everybody, you know, he's just a little corporal. You know, and and after all, he's speaking for us. He's a little man. He's known the terrible problems that we've all had. You know, and uh, so it, it, it kind of it kind of uh, there was an empathy there. But uh, but I'm I'm wondering uh, after after looking at so much of this jazz that goes on, I must get I must get uh, inv- invited to at least nine different things every week. And what do they want you to do? Do they want you to come to these things and 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 talk seriously about civil rights? No, they want you to come and entertain about civil rights. Uh, I'm always invited to, to, uh, by student groups to come and talk about Vietnam. Entertain about Vietnam. That's what they want. They want a, a couple of big, wild, wildly funny put-down lines, you know. Uh, this is what everybody wants. Nobody nobody really wants to hear that it ain't so easy. <laughs> nobody really wants to hear what Mao Zedong said last week. You don't hear much talk about that. Uh, And if you do, somebody says, oh, is this a right-wing rabble-rouser? What's he bringing in here, extraneous stuff? (laughs) Well, is it extraneous? I don't know, you know. I'm not so sure. Nobody wants to see pictures of what the Viet Cong are doing to little children in the Vietnam uh, jungles. Nobody wants to see those pictures because somehow they give you that vague, uncertain feeling that maybe there are two sides to this problem which then precludes entertainment. I'm, I'm curious, you know, going back to the, to the original premise, uh, have you noticed how many dramas we have today on the air that use war as a basic spine? McHale's Navy, Broadside, all these. And have you noticed that almost all of them are funny? Almost every last one of them is funny. They they they've made war into some kind of a big wild funny entertainment thing where Ernest Borgnine rides around on a PT boat and yells and hollers and they spend all of their time chasing waves, you know. Uh this this is it is it really that way? Do people really care whether it's that way or not? Well I don't know, you know. You know, it's funny. Every time on any given show, I'm talking about my own personal thing here. On any given show, when I am doing shows, when I come on, and I'm, I, you know, and I, and I strive to be funny, uh, I, 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 I get large numbers of letters. You know, this is a fantastic show. But whenever you do a show where you where you seriously talk about things that are bothering you you'll get dozens of letters and what is this lecture come on Well, what are you going to tell about when you were a kid you know (laughs) come on get back tell us a wonderful story when you were in the army you know and so forth and you know it's interesting whenever i tell an army story that really deals with the war people get very bothered and write angry letters and yet they want me to tell army stories like the time i told the army story of riding back in the train Riding back in the train, sleeping on the coffin of a dead PFC. This bothered a lot of people. And uh, why? Well, uh, you know, it's, war is war, you know. And really it is what Sherman said it was. A uh, uh, ripped torn in combat to the contrary. McHale to the contrary. War really is that. And maybe we've created our own. Maybe we all secretly want it. Maybe man wants and desires and hungers after hell as much as he hungers after heaven. And since it's easier to produce hell, he whips it out uh, whenever the hunger gets a little too strong. I suspect there may be something to that. But then again, this makes the whole problem very complicated. It can't be dealt with in a three-line bit by Lenny Bruce. It can't be disposed of in one single fantastic, insightful comment by uh, Mort Sahl. Right, gang? How about let's all singing a folk song about it, huh? Who wants to play the guitar? I'll sing tenor.